All right, we are starting a new series. And we like doing that, keeping a balance between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We believe that the Word of God is inspired and it's useful for correction, for reproof, for our growth. And, and it is helpful, especially at this day and age, that we are understanding what church is about. We, we have been talking about church membership, and really what we're talking about is commitment uh, to be members of one another and how we ought to, to do church. Um, we are in a transitional time where we going to have, maybe in a year, a new senior pastor. And we want to be an encouragement to that man. We want to be a, a support to him, and we want to be learners. Um, and so the, the book of First Timothy is kind of that setting the tone of what is the church supposed to look like? What is leadership supposed to look like? So hopefully this will be a guidance for us during also this time of transition. There are many topics, and I want to I get you excited to read this book on your own and, and maybe get a commentary. Maybe look in your study Bible that you have at home and, and start reading on your own. And you will be tremendously blessed by this letter. So um, I'd like to start with some statistics because um, I don't like referring much of what's going on right now, but I just want to show this how relevant this letter is for the time that we are living in. According to the Barna Group of, on Christian Statistics, American churches have now stepped into a physical unknown. Declining church loyalty, or what is sometimes referred to as church hopping, it's becoming a common feature, feature of church going. Just because somebody might attend a church doesn't mean that they attend the same church every time. While the majority of churchgoers tends to stick with a single congregation, as you can see there in the chart, the churched adults, 63% of them, and then 72% of practicing Christians um, go to one single congregation. It's a sizable minority is at least occasionally attending other churches, including nearly two, five, two in five church, church adults and one quarter of practicing Christians. Well before COVID-19 reached pandemic levels and introduced risks for the religious gatherings, physical worship spaces have been facing other challenges. Here's some. Some pastors find themselves either fighting off developers, aiming to convert their dying church they're dying churches into high-priced residences or fighting against lagging attendance numbers that can't sustain the financial needs of their house of worship. I didn't quote in here, but uh, the, even the number in giving has diminished these past few years. As author Jonathan Merritt noted in the article for The Atlantic, the cost of maintaining a large, phys uh, large physical structures, there's, there are only in use for a few hours a week by a handful of worshipers becomes prohibitive. None of these trends shows signs of slowing so that the United States' struggling congregations face a choice. And I, you know, I, I don't agree with him, but he leaves people with this choice. Start packing or find a creative way to stay afloat. Do we need new programs? Do we need ways to keep people in the churches? Is that the solution? Interestingly, a virtual attendance of late has been greater than the typical physical Sunday gathering, according to many pastors, 51% of them. I think this is more common that people are now attending church. I was mortified when I got in Brazil how few people, how many few people we had in, in our physical building. We have a big building there that can, can host really uh, 1,200 people. And uh, people that I grew up with that I knew were believers, they're still faithful, they were just watching church service at home. They're not coming to the physical building anymore. So not only we face a deficiency in understanding the importance of the local church, we also see a decrease in the credibility of church leadership. So this is another stat. A pastor's credibility is in question, even among the pastors themselves. 
For a while now, Barna has been reporting on the credibility crisis American pastors are facing. Overall, in the U.S., adults are unsure whether their pastor, the pastors in their local church can be trusted, are in touch with their community needs, and are reliable sources with wisdom and leadership. Recent Barna data collected amid the pandemic show that 50, 57% of all U.S. adults agree that at least somewhat uh, at least somewhat that a pastor is trustworthy source of wisdom. And then all the rest um, don't. Why is it that church leaders aren't trustworthy anymore? Is it their integrity? Is it their convictions? We all know that it's not uncommon for us to hear of moral failure, of aberrations of heretical teaching of these prosperity gospel preachers that we see that uh, wealth and, and health or any type of leaders that could draw a crowd to themselves, making a name to themselves. And as the saying goes, as the leaders fall, so do their followers. Christians conf Christian confession and integrity have been utterly in decline. More and more Christians believe that what they do with their private life has little to no connection with their confession of faith. And I, I say this um, because this is not a reality that is so distant from us. Last, this past year, we studied the practical theology. How does Scripture apply to different situations in life, different scenarios in life, like depression, anxiety, fear, sexual sins, all those things, the relevance of scripture. And what we see in the church is a disconnect. What I do doesn't matter. It, it, you know, it's just the way we are. This is what I do. And this is another stat that I thought was interesting is that um, privacy might seem like the natural habitat for faith formation in our increasingly individualized culture. Indeed, 56% of Christians feel that their spiritual life is entirely private. These Christians who see faith as private are less likely to say it is very important to see progress in their own life. 30% say progress is important, 54% of those who don't consider their faith private. Less likely to say that their faith is very important in their life, 40, 45%, 66%, as you can see there, and less likely to have weekly time with God. In other words, what is all this telling us? The idea that faith should be kept in private is one part of a big swirl of negative conditions that need to be addressed for people to see spiritual growth. I wonder if the sense of private individuality is behind so much scandals in the churches a disconnect between how we live and doctrine. You see a lot of churches, no, we just talk about love. We don't talk about theology. We don't like speaking of these high things and these this complicated things. And we swing the pendulum, right? We do want to avoid extremes where people only talk about God's wrath, but we stick to Scripture. And I have been worried that we are founding our theology, we are basing our theology in reactions. Oh, I don't want our church to go in this direction, so I'm going to swing the pendulum this way. But I don't want our churches to go in this strictness, so I'm going to swing the pendulum in this way. We need guidance on how to do church God's way. And really, that's what the uh, letter that Paul wrote to Timothy will tell us. So let's start reading chapter 1. So this will be just an introductory sermon to the letter. We're not going to get in depth in 1 Timothy. We're not going to do an exposition of a whole text here, but it's just an exposition of what is this letter about and what are the implications for, our to, for us to understand better um, this important letter in the New Testament. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we are going to read verses 1 through 7. 
First Timothy and verse 1 through 7. This is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And I want you to see this here. Doctrine is important. Why was so important that Paul was dealing and Timothy was dealing with these false teachers? Well, because there was a, a correlation between their behavior and the church's behavior with that teaching. He says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Just a side comment, we have a war on the conscience nowadays. People don't want to feel guilty anymore. You just ignore your conscience. You know, this is not, you're just beating yourself too much. We, our goal of our instruction is a love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions. Wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we know the Lord of the church. It is not church leaders that have presided this church. It is not us that are at front, but Christ is the shepherd of the church. Lord, and because he's the shepherd, we want to listen to his words. We want to obey him and to follow his directions and instructions on how we ought to do church. Pray, Father, that you would um, put in our hearts a desire to learn more of your expectations for us as a church, as a whole, as well as individual believers on how you have called us to live a life that is consistent with what we teach. And for that, Lord, we pray for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to tell you some, some facts about First Timothy. So we get to study a little bit. And one, one of the main things is that this letter was sent to Timothy to instruct or to put the church in order, as we just read here, on how one ought to live so to review um, the way that the gospel is displayed in our lives. God tells us that Timothy, how the church must look and act if it is to glorify him. It has everything to do with the gospel. Thus we have in Timothy 1, the greatest treasures for the church. It will talk about finances. In this letter, it will talk about materialism. It will talk about cults on how they tend to manipulate people to do things or to forbid things. They're blessed by the Lord that will forbid people to eat certain foods or to get married. All these things will be addressed in this letter. Now, lately, they started questioning the authorship of this letter, which we read from the first line, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who is a writer, Paul. But lately, people have been putting doubts because they don't agree, especially when it comes to the role of woman in the church um, and the no acceptance of women pastors in the letter of Timothy to say this letter was not written by Paul because Paul would not be so prejudiced, prejudiced against women. So that's one of the main things. Um, so it's obvious in the first argument in favor of his authorship stands in claim the verse, in the first verse of the letter. It is argued, though, 
that in many times, many ancient times, in the early church pseudonyms, writing was an acceptance, a literary practice. So basically, someone would sign as if they were Paul, but not being Paul. Well, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, uh, chapter 317, warns against forgery. Paul, actually, how about we go there? Look what Paul says about someone writing in his name. 1 Thessalonians 2, 2. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of, oh, actually, 2 Thessalonians, I'm sorry. Paul says here that you not, you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if, if, as if it is from us to effect to the day that the Lord has come. So there was confusion in Thessalonica and people received letters. And it was said that it was Paul's, that Paul that wrote that. He said, I don't want you to be confused by this. I did not write those letters. He does not condone this, this kind of, of the pseudonym. Because they say this is an advantageous thing, you know, because they're going to have the authority of Paul, and yet they're not Paul. And they're doing that because they sympathize with him. Well, it is really impossible that um, this letter wouldn't be written by the Apostle Paul, as there are many, many references that are very personal on his testimony, on his relationship with Timothy. And then I would question, if you go to verse 16 of chapter 1 of Timothy, okay, um, you know, I really like this person. I'm going to pretend that I'm, I, I'm them, and this is what I'm going to write. So this is what is written in verse 16, yet for this reason I found no mercy so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now, what is he the foremost of? Verse, um, says the, the worst of the sinners, really, that's what he's saying. I thank God in Christ Jesus who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, verse 12, verse 13. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy. So him being the worst of sinners, it had to be Paul. The pastorals are much closer in style and content to Paul's other letters than any other canonical, non-canonical and in canonical book, undoubtedly pseudonym books, to authentic writings of those in whose name they were forged. Additionally, the amount of reference to historical people and events makes it unquestionable that someone would make up all these scenarios. For instance, when he says, calls Timothy my son, my true child in the faith, verse 2. Or in verse um, 3.14, when he's talking about his traveling. He says, I hope to come to you soon. Or 4.12, where he's giving specific instructions to Timothy to not, to not let anyone to look down on him because he's young. So all these personal references only um, could come from people that lived in that century and that lived during that time and knew those specific circumstances. Now, what is the historical uh, context? And that's where the map is there. You might be confused why I put a, a map there of Paul's first and missionary, um, missionary journeys. So the first and second letters of, to Timothy uh, was written by Paul uh, to his young par partner in missions, Timothy. Timothy stands out as perhaps as the most prominent, trusting, and long-standing of Paul fellow workers. So let's take a trip to Acts chapter 16. According to Acts, Paul encounters Timothy after he already have come to faith in Christ. So verse 16, verse 1 says, Paul came also, this is his 
second missionary journey, and he says that he also came to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And I understand that there is this cultural element that Paul is not a missionary, and Timothy is coming on board to do missions with him to Jewish people. And knowing that he was a Gentile and wasn't circumcised, Paul thought, you know, just for a matter of wisdom, let's just do this. The Bible doesn't require, the New Testament doesn't require, the Scripture doesn't require us to do this anymore because we're in the, under the New Covenant. But so not to cause people to stumble, let's, let's do this, take this step. So Paul circumcises Timothy. And, and then we have um, him progressing in the trip. It says, although he's not specifically mentioned, Timothy is assumed to be present with Paul and Silas as they evangelized Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Um, later, let me see here. Maybe I'll use this one. So we have here um, Paul coming through Asia, going to Troas and Neapolis. Um, here they have a vision of people asking for help to evangelize. And so uh, the Apostle Paul, Luke, that's when in, in chapter 16, uh, it changes from being a third person Luke is narrating this whole story, and he's saying, now, we went. So it, we understand that maybe Luke joined them in this trip, and then Timothy went with him through Neapolis, Philippi, Amphipolis. And why I'm telling this? Because in Thessalonica, there will be a big, big thing happening. And then later in Berea, we hear that Timothy is there, and he's taking care of the congregations already. So moving to chapter 17 of Acts, verse 14, it says, Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, receiving the command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible as they left. So, a mob comes here from Berea, and they, actually from Thessalonica, they follow Paul, Paul all the way to Berea, and we have Timothy, Silas, and they just put Paul in the boat and send, them to, send him to Athens, otherwise he's going to get killed. And Timothy remains there, that's what we just read, remains there in Berea, and um, he goes back to strengthen Thessalonica. And then we know that later Paul is going to write the letter to the Thessalonians, in response to Timothy report, Timothy report um, on that church, saying that they're doing well. Even though they're new believers, um, they are doing well. So on the other side, if you're here on the other side, here is Thessalonica, Berea. Paul is put on the boat, bring all the way to Athens, and Timothy stays there to strengthen these church plants here. And then verse um, chapter 18, 5. Where is Timothy now? It says that uh, Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, and Paul began devoting himself completely to the word Solomon testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So Paul is now in Corinth, and then uh, Timothy comes here to, to help him out with Silas. Chapter 19, verse 21 and 22. Then we have now the church in Ephesus as they come back. Paul is going to spend a lot of time there in the church in Ephesus. Chapter 20, verses 21 and 22. It says, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything from what was profitable, teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Ephesus is the setting, and this is where Timothy is actually shepherding now. Paul left him there to take care of that congregation. Um, 
Timothy then is last seen in Acts chapter uh, 20. It says that there is a, an uproar that happened in Macedonia in chapter tw- Acts chapter 20. Paul sent for his disciples. And when he had exhorted them and take his leave then to, of them, he left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through these districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And then I, I need to see, um, it is on verse 4. It says, And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby and Timothy. So that's the last mention there of Timothy in um, Acts. So Paul frequently will send Timothy on these missions, actually, to uh, strengthen congregations like he did in Thessalonica, as I mentioned. And then later on, he's going to send them him to Corinth. The church was just living in utter sin, and they needed someone to model to them what it was like to have a life of godliness. And Timothy was that person. Now, the location. Let me talk a little bit about the location. The city of Ephesus, that is just right there in the map. Um, they were well known uh, for the Temple of Artemis um, in Acts. We'll talk about that. Ephesus is a setting for Acts 19. Paul taught daily there for two years, according to verse 9 of chapter 19. The elders from Ephesus came to see Paul on his last journey to Jerusalem, and they were very afflicted. How about we move to chapter 20? Let's look at verse 17 and 18. This is the departure of Paul from Ephesus. He's, he knows that he's going to be arrested soon. Uh, the Lord has revealed that to him, and they're concerned for the churches after he leaves. And it says, From my leaders, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from this first day that I set foot on Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with all tears, with tears, and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying both to Jews and Greeks the repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is Ephesus. Uh, the city was originally founded in um, the, year th- two, uh, the year 1000 before Christ uh, by the Greeks, and then they came unto, under the Roman control in 133 uh, B.C. So Ephesus was located there by the Aegean, Aegean coast. Let me bring back the map there. The Aegean Sea. Um, that's uh, the location there, which is modern Turkey today. The roads from the city spread out in every direction along the coast and through the interior of the province. Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. The population at that time was 250,000 during the early time of the Christianity. And as we just read here, the city was composed of both Greek, the majority of them were Greek, but also there was a huge population of Jewish people there as well. So Ephesus was this major, major com- commercial port, and the port required a constant dredging. Some of the major public buildings discovered at the site of ancient Ephesus include a famous temple of Artemis, which they thought it was one of the seven wonders of the world. I don't know what that statue is about. You know, it's an ugly um, god, really, and they, they worshipped the god of a fertility and you can't understand that. Um, and then also, uh, they had many gyna- gymnasiums and uh, public squares and stadiums. One of the significant buildings that you can still see this day, if you ever travel to Turkey, you can see a modern, uh, modern Turkey there, and then you can see the uh, old uh, Ephesian theater that could hold 24,000 people. It was a big city. That's what I'm trying to do. So then let's look at the date. When was this letter written? If Paul was released from his imprisonment in Rome, he wrote his letter during his 
the course of subsequent missionary activities. We should date the latter during the 60s. So let me give him a, some reference here. We know that um, Paul's second Roman imprisonment, he is beheaded by the, the Emperor Nero. So that was the year 68 or 67. So the letter had to be written to be written one of these years here. This is the first missionary journey, second missionary journey, that's where Timothy joins them, third missionary journey, and then um, I'll, I'll stick here to my notes and then I'll, I'll go back pointing more. So it has been traditionally beheld that the apostle was martyred under Nero, who died in 68. The chronology of his life is not absolutely certain, but it is usually thought that he arrived in Rome um, as narrated in Acts in the year 59 or 60. Allowing for a couple of years of his imprisonment there, he would then have been released in 62. So Paul was under house arrest for two years, right, from 60 all the way to 62. His letter to the Romans shows that he wanted to go to Spain and that he may have done this immediately on release to go on later to Macedonia. Or he had may gone immediately to the east and left the trip to Spain until later, a later time. Many modern scholars think that we should place his death at the height of the Neronian persecution, saying that the year 64. Other historians like Eusebius think he died in, at 67, and I think it's the most accepted one. So if this is correct, then, we put the writing of the letter right about um, the year of 65 or even, 60, uh, even 66. Now, the suggestion is that we should take reference, uh, Paul's departure to Macedonia to be mentioned in Acts 21, after the riot in Ephesus, where he leaves, and then he leaves Timothy there to take care of the church. All right, now let's go back to our um, letter of Timothy, and um, we're going to keep it short today. I just want to take some lessons and some of the things that we can observe from the text of First Timothy. The first fact there, and you have in your outline, is that false teachers infiltrated the church leadership. Um, Acts chapter 20, 30, actually. I, when Paul was, you know, saying his goodbyes to the believers there in Ephesus, he, he made a prophecy on that church as a way of warning them. Chapter 20, verse 30 says that from among yourselves... Man, we will rise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. So, verse actually 29 says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock, and from among yourselves, men will arise. This is not people from outside the church that was bringing false doctrine. It was people inside the church that was bringing this kind of teaching. Their teaching was loosely based on Jewish mythical reinterpretation of the law and genealogies with probably a strong influence of Hellenistic thought and possibly some form of Gnosticism that was in his beginnings there. People that overemphasized, oh, you need this special knowledge, this unique knowledge that nobody has. You don't need the, we don't need the scriptures. You don't need Paul. You just need this special knowledge that you can find within yourself. This is all about the spiritual. The things in the flesh don't matter. The things of this world don't matter. It's just all about the spirit. And then these, they had succumbed of the teachings of demons. It, you know, and I can only imagine. Um, there's, at some point here, it says that on chapter 4, the spirit explicitly says in the letter time, some will fall away from faith through deceitful spirits and doctrine of demons. And here's the things that they, they were doing. See, you believe, and there's a practice. Verse 3, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God had created to be gratefully shared and by those who believe and know the truth. So, see that the problem with, no, everything is a spiritual the things of the flesh is bad, so getting married, having sexual relationships, that's bad. You don't do that. You don't even get married. So they started forbidding marriage. You see how they, they swing the pendulum? We want seriousness. Yes, we want people to take 
life seriously. We want them to honor their marriages. But now we're going to swing the pendulum. You're going to forbid marriage altogether. Well, you can't be eating foods like a glutton. Well, but there are certain foods that you need to avoid. There are certain foods that you can't eat. And they start forbidding things and putting laws and adding to Scripture. So that what was happening there when Paul wrote. While teaching appears to have some similarities of what happened nearby Colossae, it does not appear to be unusual. It is natural, natural to assume that in this situation, Paul's vocabulary and perhaps, perhaps even the method of his argumentation can be expected to be different from other situations, such as the ones that uh, we see in Galatia, for example, talking about the Judaizers. So it's a slightly different, but there, there is still some influence there from Judaizers. Um, in any case, we know that false teachers are infiltrating the church from within. And then second, the problem of a mature church. Well, their issues were not to be expected of a new church. That church was established already when Timothy, Timothy was sent there. And like the church in Corinth, the Ephesian church had the benefit of Paul's extended ministry and teaching. For two years, Paul was spent, spent his time there. I mean, compare that to three weeks that Thessalonica had. So this is a mature church, people that were well taught. It had time to develop a structure of overseers and deacons. They already had elders there. And yet, despite, despite of all Paul's teaching, the overseers had not sufficiently learned the gospel to refute heresy. Like Timothy, they would have known Paul's theology, but more than simply knowing theology is important, that was the focus of what Paul would have told them, is how you live that theology. It is why he told Timothy to demand that false teachers simply stop what they were doing. By now, they should have known better. Those false teachings would have tremendous implication for the way that they were living. Third, Timothy is designated to appoint qualified leaders. Timothy, Timothy was an itinerant apostolic delegate. So Paul has put him in charge to organize the elders and to see who was qualified and give instructions on how to do these things. Timothy and Titus came with Paul's authority is that 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are called what we, we call them the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are composed of these three letters, and one is written to Timothy, and the other one is to Titus, which are Paul's um, protégés. Number four, Timothy stands as a model of a hard, a selfless, hard worker in ministry. We're going to see more of Timothy next week, um, being a true child of faith, so understanding what conversion is. Um, but um, for now, I'll give you some on Timothy. He was repeatedly sent into difficult situations, sometimes even alone, to teach people and to maintain a loyalty to Paul and to the gospel. This fact has significant implications. Timothy knew Paul's theology and did not need to be taught. Much, if not all, of the teaching in the pastoral epistles is directed toward the church. And even though the bulk of 1 Timothy is intended for the Ephesian church, it is still a personal letter in style. He's writing directly to Timothy. As is expected of any personal letter, the vocabulary, the style, and the subject matter are different from the formal letters. Because some would argue to say, well, you see, it's very different from Col Colossians. It's very different from Thessalonians. Well, of course it is. One was written to a whole church, and one was written to an individual. One was dealing with problems in Corinth on sexual immorality and other things, and others are dealing with false teachers. So it doesn't mean that Paul didn't write it. It just means that he wrote different things. I mean, if you look back at your old stuff, you will see that you have written papers on geography, on history, they're different topics. It doesn't mean that you didn't write them. The topics are different. The vocabulary will be different. It should, at least, <laughs> if you're a good student. Um, and so that doesn't exclude Paul from being the author because of those differences, the thematic differences. Now, one of the interesting things is that 
I don't know about you, but every time I hear of Timothy, I would picture this little, you know, scruffy little guy, very shy and Timothy, and that's how they're, I don't know where this came about. The often painted picture of Timothy as weak, a timid person, is not supported by evidence. He was Paul's first lieutenant, so, so to speak, someone that Paul laughed, felt comfortable sending to difficult situations, as he did repeatedly throughout Acts. Remember in that map that I showed you how um, in Berea, Paul was in risk of being killed? Who stayed there in Berea? Who stayed there in Thessalonica? Timothy. I mean, he... And then, remember that John Mark had left Paul at some point, who joined him through the whole mission trip? Timothy did. He did not desert Paul. So, Paul, uh, Timothy was someone that Paul felt comfortable sending to difficult situations that he did repeatedly throughout Acts. Paul's exhortation is not to be seen in a castigation of Timothy for some supposed failure, but as an encouragement in an di- extremely difficult situation. So, for instance, to, in chapter 1, verse 18, when he says here, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. They read this. You see, Timothy is just not fighting. And, and that's why Paul is just saying, you fight the good fight, man. You do what I'm asking you to do. You're called to do this. Doesn't mean that Timothy is a weak person. It just means that Paul is trying to encourage him to persevere and in the fight that he had been entrusted with. Yes, we do know that Timothy had constant physical um, health difficulties, but that doesn't mean that he was a shy or even not courageous person. Number five, the emphasis on church leadership should be on a person's character and conduct is is stemming from sound doctrine. The first letter to Timothy is not a manual written to an anonymous church situation. It was uh, very specific um, in terms of the content. And while the issues of church governance do play a significant and visible role, in 1 Timothy, the majority of the instructions there are here is to the church as a whole. So we, we would think, oh, this is for church leadership only, and then we read about deacons, we read about elders. But really, only 27 of the 113 verses of this letter is dealing with leadership. Other matters that are treated are law and grace, the scope that offers salvation, personal encouragement to Timothy, addressing widows. How do you deal with widows in the church? How do you help them? How do you shepherd them? How do you deal with the slavery in the church? How do you deal with people that are rich? How are they going to work with their finances? So it is also true that Paul's letter to Titus is the same thing. There is a lot of instruction to church leadership, but the majority of the letter is for the church as a whole. So in the relatively few verses that speak of overseers and deacons, Paul's emphasis is not on church structure. There are not any duties assigned with only a few implied, teaching, oversight, and service. They're the only thing that are implied there when he's describing um, the, the office of an elder. The majority of it is having to do with the character of these teachers of these elders. The emphasis on, is on personal character, conduct, understanding of the gospel. That's why they say that he shouldn't be a, someone new in faith. And the ability to explain and defend the true gospel. I'm about to go there. 1 Timothy 3. Some of the requirements. And I'm not going to read all of it, but Chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Doesn't mean that he's going to be, has to be married. It, It means that he's a faithful man to the wife he has. 
um, temperate, prudent, respectable hospital, able to teach, not addicted to wine, a pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. And he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage the household of God, how will he take care of the church of God? So he should not be the new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that we will not fall into reproach and a snare of the devil. You know, there's a side comment here. Um, be praying for us, elders, as we're looking to these candidates, that we examine their lives, that um, we would have wisdom. Um, you know, someone can, be, can present themselves so well and knowledgeable and with a great resume, but do they have a good reputation with people in the community? Do they have, do they have left a, a history behind them that is a good history and not a bad one? What kind of reputation that man has? And then lastly here, purposes. Timothy correction of leadership issues. There are therefore several reasons why Paul wrote this epistle to Timothy. First one was to encourage Timothy to stay on at Ephesus, as we just read, and deal with the significant and difficult issues that had arisen. And then two, to provide authoritative instruction on how the household of God was to conduct itself. To combat directly the opponents and their teaching and to remind Timothy how he was to conduct himself in what he was teaching. So in terms of application, how can we uh, think through this? Paul does not refute the theological error of his opponents just in great detail. He really focused on their behavior. Um, the call to godly behavior is not a works, uh, works righteousness. Neither is a call to be a citizen without theological underpinning. A person's belief and behavior are so closely related that behavior reflects belief. What someone believes about their sanctification, for example. We just um, saw that those are statistics. Like, well, okay, my life is private. doesn't matter the way I live. And then you look at the outlook at these people and like, well, I'm going to live in secrecy. You see the implication of that. Therefore, there is significant emphasis on good works. You would read a lot about a good conscience in this letter. You would read a lot about godliness, of sanctification that needs to be seen in the life of believers. Um, Timothy, for, for example, let's look at one. I think this is a dear passage to me. Uh, chapter 4, verse 6 and 10. says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished in the words of faith and on the sound doctrine which you have been following. But you have, done, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godly godliness. For bodily discipline is only of a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. What Paul is getting at here, you see... All that teaching, all that bad teaching that had infiltrated the church mattered. Because now we have people falling off the rails because they just got distracted by these speculations and by these maybe prophecies that was being brought. And Paul is saying, you know, you need to exercise yourself in godliness. We live in a generation today that fitness is... The, 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 the end goal of life. We're trying not to age. We're at all costs trying to keep healthy. And I see nothing wrong with trying to be healthy. But we put so much effort. Think about guys, I spend hours, or girls do, in the gym, 
but they can't stay 10 minutes reading scripture. And the emphasis is, well, theology is not, it's not, it's not relevant. I like the practical things. Yes, the practical things stem from our theology. It stems from our beliefs. I'm, I'm going to stop here, but there's so much that we can learn from this instruction that what we believe will have a direct effect on how we live our lives. Let's pray for the Lord's help. Um, actually, before we do that, um, move on to chapter 4. And it's the last passage I'm going to read here real quick. Um, Timothy was called to be this example to the church. And it says, prescribe and teach these things. So he's talking about the teaching. And then the second, the, after that, he said, let no one look down on your youthfulness just because you're young, but rather you become an example in what? In a speech, the way you talk, in your conduct, the way you do your things, the way you buy and purchase, the way you make your transactions, the way you behave with the young ladies, the way you behave with the old people. Love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to the exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift which is within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying of hands. So that's why in chapter 314, Paul says, I'm hoping to come to you, but in case I'm delayed, verse 15, chapter 3, in case I'm delayed, I write that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God and the pillar and support of the truth. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we need so desperately the clear teaching of your word that transform us, that makes us more like Christ. We need to know how Christ is. We need to know how Christ is patient, how he's loving, how he's kind, how he's just, so that we become like him. Lord, just help us to shy away from a life that is disconnected. Lord, maybe we be coherent in what we believe, we're firm to believe in how we live. Give us the grace, Lord. We know that apart from you, we can't change, but by your grace, we can. And that's why you have given all these wonderful instructions in the letter of 1 Timothy. May you bless the, the rest of our time here. In Jesus' name, amen.